when um, Adam was sharing about Naomi doing MTS up on the Central Coast, uh, I thought, wait a minute, you know, you guys do a lot of Christian ministry and serving around the place and you don't get paid for it. And, uh, and I thought, well done. Uh, good on you. That's how it normally works. And I also thought another thing, that's the strength of our churches is uh, the, the service of people in our congregations. That's how church works, really. Um, uh, and the second thing I thought was uh, Naomi's got something coming to her uh, because she'll work very hard uh, uh, doing her traineeship. And uh, I take it that those uh, in your midst who serve in this capacity in full-time Christian ministry, uh, I hope work ridiculously hard and take a break. Um, I did a little survey of some guys first year out of Moore College because uh, I had cause to uh, uh, share with someone just how hard they work. And I said, basically rang up four guys and I said, you know, how many hours are you doing each week? Uh, and you're taking your day off? Yes, taking my day off. And I do between 55 and 60 hours a week is what the normal pattern of thing is. Uh, so, uh, and um, that's just kind of, so I, I hope that you, you don't think that uh, those who serve among you are bludging because uh, that certainly shouldn't be the case. Uh, so I thought Naomi's going to – I wish her all the best in, in her MTS experience. Now, third thing before we get started uh, is uh, in Chapter 1, if you've got an NIV Bible, you'll notice that the headings uh, – who's got an NIV Bible, by the way? I'm, I'm using the NIV 2011. Uh, it says the NIV headings have Habakkuk's complaint, the Lord's answer, and then Habakkuk's second complaint. And the NIV translators lead us down the pathway of thinking that Habakkuk's complaint is about the behaviour of the Israelites. The Lord's answer is then he's going to bring the Babylonians to judge them. And then you have the second complaint, which is how on earth could he use the Babylonians? Uh, in the talk earlier, I think I was establishing that, that he's seeing the violence and the violence is actually the Babylonians. Uh, so the Lord's answer, in my NIV, I've got that heading there, the Lord's answer. I take it is actually Habakkuk reflecting on what the Lord has revealed previously, uh, what's been said. That is, there's one complaint. Uh, the complaint is, how on earth could God be using the Babylonians uh, to punish the Lord's people? The, the end conclusion is fairly much the same. Uh, but if you had the NIV headings, it would have been different to the kinds of things I was sharing. Uh, that is one complaint, the whole of chapter one. Okay, here we go. Now we can now we can start. Friends, we live in a culture where nobody wants to wait for anything. We have products and services that are delivered faster and more efficiently than ever before. You just don't have to wait. And if you have to wait for something, it's incredibly frustrating. Yesterday I was driving up and stopped at Engadine McDonald's and I think I had to wait about eight minutes for my Big Mac. And I was, I was sitting there thinking, I, did, I, I waited patiently, but I think, wow, this is such a long time. And I, I was reflecting, I was thinking, now, Chris, if you had to go make yourself a hamburger at this point, how long would it take you? It's worth still just waiting for them to make it. So uh, now think about how long it would take in the past to share a photograph, okay? Now, this might be a revelation for some of you, but other you, <laughs> others can reminisce. Okay, First of all, you had to, you know, if I want to share a photograph with you, I had to uh, ensure that my camera had film in it. 
film. Remember what film was? Um, you know what? I'm having to educate my children as to what light globes look like. Well, the old ones. Uh, anyway, um, you put, had to make sure I had film in the camera. Uh, you then had to wait until the film was finished. You then had to wait until you got to the place to get it developed. And then you might have to wait for it to be developed. Now, that might take a week, but during the 1980s, they had one-hour processing places, and that was revolutionary that you could go drop your film in, do some shopping, and come back. However, now I said we needed to share a photograph. So you had to go somewhere where you got the two-for-one deal uh, and prints, and then you got your second set of prints because, I mean, you're not going to share a photograph because I want to keep them, put them in my album. So in order to share a photograph, you had to get your two-for-one prints, and so then you could share a photograph. So by the time you snap your camera, it might be weeks before you get that photograph. And then you've got to see the person with whom you want to share the photograph. How long does it take you to share a photograph now? Oh, four seconds, five seconds from within the app and you've shared it to a 1,000 people? How fast does the internet go? It, it's, it's just extraordinary to think that that's what used to happen. And, I mean, that's why Kodak doesn't exist anymore because that whole process doesn't exist. Uh, Kodak doesn't exist. We just don't like waiting. Um, but are there any benefits in waiting? Some of the things are better when you wait. Making a cup of tea. It's called a tea break. You know, you can't, you can't rush the tea leaves doing their thing. Uh, you've got to make sure you wait for the kettle to boil. It's a, the whole experience is just having a bit of downtime, isn't it? Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, waiting in things in life is something that's, that's, uh, that's good to do. Childhood is preserved when you wait for the experiences of adulthood. But in our society, uh, everything is being uh, enlarged in terms of ages. Adolescence is enlarged and middle age is getting larger because of longevity, etc. The one age group that's contracting is childhood because no one wants to delay the things of adulthood. Uh, and I take it one of the key principles in parenting is just delay. You just put things off. Uh, we use Common Sense Parenting, the app, and it's kind of like if you want to watch a TV show, it's what Common Sense Parenting says. You know, the kids go, but all the other kids have seen whatever movie it is. And we say, well, no, you've got another four years to wait. You'll be okay. You'll survive. And they just know the deal. you just got to wait. And so when birthdays come around, there's a lot of excitement because there's a whole new range of movies they can watch, whatever it might be. Uh, and you think about uh, sex um, and waiting and waiting appropriately, and it's a good thing to do. But in our society, it's a case of, well, you have a desire. If it's not fulfilled immediately, you have been denied your humanity. And actually waiting for the appropriate time for things is a good thing. It produces other things. It has the possibility of producing patience, endurance, but most importantly, the possibility of growing faith because faith is trusting God patiently for him to fulfil his promises. And so waiting is a very important Christian exercise. It grows faith. Now, before we go on, let's recap a couple of things from Habakkuk. Okay, we left Habakkuk asking that question about the violence and injustice he was seeing around him and how on earth it is that God could use the Babylonians, a more wicked nation, to punish the Israelites. 
How could he use them to punish another nation more righteous than themselves? How could he jeopardise his own people, jeopardise his own promise to bless the whole world through his people? How could this be the case? Well, verse 2 and verse 3. Remember what we're going to do. We're going to hear this answer from God in chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 2 and 3, the certainty of the future actions of God. We're going to jump over verse 4, coming back to it. And in verse 5 to 20, we're going to hear about God's actions to bring justice. Uh, So that's where we're headed. So verse 2 and verse 3, the certainty of the future actions of God. Verse 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. So the prophet is to write down what he's about to hear for two reasons. The first is permanence for the future. There's going to be a permanence about this response, permanence. And the second is portability, portability for the herald to take it places. Uh, And the portability shows that this message is not just for the prophet. It's something to be shared and distributed so that everyone will know this word. It's also to be permanent. Uh, There's a permanence about God's answer. This is not a quick Facebook post that disappears or sky writing that's going to, you know, it's gone. It's permanent. It's more like a tattoo. You know, it's kind of, it's it's there. It's stuck. Um, uh, I'm not a big fan of tattoos. Um, uh, But this is a tattoo almost, a thing that can be passed down to generations, something you can't do with a tattoo unless you're prepared to get your kids tattooed, I suppose. You know, I could get all my kids tattooed. Are you allowed to do that? No. I imagine there'd be a whole bunch of people who'd like to do it. Hey, wouldn't it be good to put you know, body art on my kids, two-year-olds and stuff? Anyway, I mean, it's not even like that. It's, this is something that's permanent, is passed down to generations uh, and uh, is passed across wide and permanent, passed through generations. So we have this message for the future. And the stone tablets will be passed into the future because this word is not just for the prophet and his time, but it's one for future generations. And the revelation we're about to hear is going to be for a future day. Now, that could be immensely frustrating, couldn't it, for the prophet? Well, you know, surely, why don't you do something now, God? But he's going to write it down because this revelation is going to be for a future time. And from a human point of view, it feels as though any delay is a sign that God is not active. Any delay at all is a sign that God isn't active. But from God's point of view, there is no delay at all that it will come exactly when God wants it to come. Verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God's action will come. It might feel as though it's delaying, but from God's point of view, it is not going to delay. It is going to come exactly when he wants it to come. Exactly. And notice also that what God does, he initiates his written word. It's not as though God's word spoken and heard by the prophet is powerful, but as soon as it's written down, it's ineffective. But God says, no, here's my word, write it down so other people can hear my word also. That the word of God written is just as powerful as the powerful word of God heard by the prophet. And you might feel that God is silent. You might feel as though, well, I've only got the Bible and yet this is God's word written, powerfully speaking to you through it. 
that God speaks his word powerfully through that written word. And that's why the Bible, I take it, is central to your church and what you do together. It's why when we gather together, we, so we say, on the weekend we're going to study Habakkuk. Why don't we study something more relevant? And it's also why in your own life, why the Bible is so important, because this is how God rules your life and how God speaks to you. That as you read the scriptures and have your life conformed to it, that you're having your life conformed to God's will and his desires for you, that you hear in it his promise for you and his promise that you're to trust. Okay, back to Habakkuk. So this word, it's for the future. It's going to happen. It might feel like a delay, but it's going to happen exactly the right time. Now we're going to jump over, verse 4, come back to this. But what is this word that's going to be brought? And it's a word that God's actions will come and that God will bring justice. The Babylonians will not get away with what's happening. It's a message of judgment on them. It's about what God will do to the Babylonians in the future. They will not be left unjudged. That God has set a day and he will judge them. Now have a look at how many times the word will is used. Just look 15 to 5 to 20. Just look through there. This is what will happen. It will happen. I think 16 times in my translation. Just scan your eye through. What we see here is not somehow the natural consequences of their actions playing out. You know, you don't get your car serviced and it conks out or whatever it might be. Don't fill it up with fuel and you run out of petrol. No, it's not natural consequences in that sense. But this is of God's personal judgment against them. And the idea of woe is the idea of God's judgment coming. And five times that word woe is used. But notice that God isn't judging them for being Babylonians. You know, really I'm for the Israelites and I'm against Babylonians and so I'm going to judge the Babylonians because they're Babylonians. Look at what he judges them for, verse 5. We're going, to, we're going to go through verse 5 to verse 20 quite quickly, just thinking about the content. Verse 5, what do we see? <clears throat> he is arrogant, greedy. Verse 6, he piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Verse 8, they have plundered many nations. They've shed human blood. They've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Verse 9, They've built their houses by unjust gain. You see that in the news recently as well. Verse 10, they have plotted the ruin of many peoples. Verse 12, they've built a city with bloodshed and established towns by injustice. And verse 15, the earliest form of porn. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. In verse 19, They've made idols. There is going to be justice for them. They themselves will be plundered. Woe will come to them. God will act in judgment against them. God is the one we're told in the temple. God is the one who is going to bring judgment. God does not turn a blind eye to their wickedness. He does not turn a blind eye to their violence. He does not turn a blind eye to their lawlessness. He will act in judgment on them. Now, if this was just about the Babylonians, it would be easy to think it was all just about them. But actually here we see God's judgment is against sin. 
See, quite frankly, if God was judging them for being Babylonians, it would feel a whole lot safer. But he, but he judges them for the wrongdoing, for the things that they've done wrong, for their sin. You see, God doesn't judge people based on, based on their ethnicity. He doesn't judge Muslims for being Muslims or white people for being white people or lawyers for being lawyers. Sorry, lawyers. Um, God judges people because of their sin. And it would be much more comfortable if he judged people for their Babylon, being Babylonian, wouldn't it? Because I think about myself. Um, my great-grandfather was Portuguese, hence my name is Braga, and uh, there's a whole bunch of you know people they married, but they didn't marry any Babylonians. My great-grandfather married an Englishwoman. My grandfather married an English missionary. My father married a, uh, an Aussie here and, you know, from, from Bundaberg and uh, no Babylonians there. I'm safe. <laughs> I'm not a Babylonian. This is fantastic news. But I'm a sinner. And you look down at the, the wicked things and you think, that's me also and it's you also that sinners fall under the judgment of God, whereas the righteous would live. Which side of God's judgment will I be? Well, I might not be a Babylonian, but I am a sinner. There's a tension, isn't it? How can anyone be right with God? How can I, though I'm a sinner, be right with the holy God? There are two ways that the Bible describes how you can be right with God. One is through obedience to the law. God had described the way he wanted people to live and if they obeyed him, they would see life. And we see it in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And I think we've got a slide for this, Dave. Let's wake Dave up in fact, That's great. Um, Leviticus 18, verse 5. Keep my decrees and laws. For the man who obeys them, person who obeys them, will live by them. That is, they'll have life. The righteous person is the person who acts in a right way. And you need to be a righteous person in order to live. That's what's been described in Leviticus. You have to obey in order to see life. Now, the difficulty in the Old Testament is that no one is righteous. Not the Babylonians, no human being. Psalm 143, King David says this, Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one is righteous before you. There's no one righteous. So on one side we see, yes, the righteous, they'll live. And if you're not righteous, well, you'll be judged. And the difficulty is that we're all on that side. We're on the side of judgment. And so how is it that a sinner can be right with God? If God's judgment is against sin and wickedness, how can I, a sinner, be saved from this judgment? And it's here we now come to the most surprising verse of Habakkuk. If you're reading through it, you think, it's a nothing. It's a throwaway line. He could have missed it out and no one would have noticed. The New Testament writers, they pick this up and they say, this encapsulates everything about what it means to know God, that this verse is everything about what it means to know God. A surprising path to life. 
And this half verse is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Have a look with me, verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Or the righteous person will live by faith. It's just three little words in the Hebrew. And these three words, or seven in English, are revolutionary at one level, but at another level they're nothing new. Revolutionary because you'd expect the righteous to live because of what they've done, because of their works. The righteous are righteous because they've done the righteous things. What's faith doing there? Why is faith in that equation? And the very structure of Habakkuk is that the righteous one is the one who depends on God for their future. They relate to God on the basis of hearing the promise of God and trusting that promise despite everything they see around them. They trust God. And the heart of relating to God is not moral performance but personal trust. And that is revolutionary. It was something revolutionary that I heard when I was 16. I've been told it before, but my eyes had not been opened. It's revolutionary. that The God of the universe, the God of the Old Testament and New Testament, is not some moral policeman seeking moral improvement and ensuring that you are, do you meet the grade or not and be led into his kingdom. But he's a God of relationships that's calling on people to trust him with their lives, to have their lives shaped by that trust and on the basis of that trust, to be given life. And for most people, that is revolutionary. In Jesus' day, it was revolutionary. You've got to think the Pharisees, what were they concerned about? Righteousness of life, as far as they were concerned, and particularly external righteousness, meant they were right with God, improving moral conduct of them personally and of the nation. But Jesus himself threatened the nation because he wasn't acting properly on the Sabbath. It was an issue of national security that they had to stop Jesus because as a nation they saw that they needed to act rightly in order to establish the promises of God. They saw the future of their nation at stake in keeping that law of Moses. But Jesus taught people they needed to have a relationship with him Trust him, a relationship that would bring forgiveness and transformation, a relationship with God that was not about external rule-keeping, but this personal trust of him as their Lord and Saviour. And that's what Jesus taught and it's what the New Testament apostles preached, this gospel of forgiveness through trusting God. And they preached that it was nothing new, in fact. It's how God always acted with people. And so the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 1, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written from Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. And really what Paul's doing is then the Romans is expanding what that means. What does it mean for the righteous to live by faith? Outlining what it means to be a sinner, outlining what it looks like to trust Jesus and the gift of grace that God gives us. And by chapter 4, Paul shows how this is what happened to Abraham and King David. It's nothing new. That they trusted God and they were right with God as a result. Paul makes the same point in Galatians. Turn with me to our second reading, Galatians chapter 3. 
So Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And so you think, yes, it sounds like a revolutionary idea, but it's right back there in Genesis chapter 15. This is the basis on which God has accepted people, that they trust him. Here we have a wicked man, Abraham, hearing God's word, and trusting him, a sinner who's now right with God. It's a staggering thing. But it's not just for him alone. Verse 7, have a look down. It's for you too. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. That is, you can walk in exactly the same footsteps that Abraham walked in. You can have everything that Abraham had. You can have that life. You can have that blessing of God. Verse 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. I'm not a Babylonian. In fact, I don't think any of us are Babylonians in that sense. The nation's gone. That nation's gone. But we're all sinners. And we're all sinners who need a saviour. And that blessing that's given to Abraham, that promise, is something that you can share in as someone who's a human being as someone that's a sinner, rebelled against God, and yet loved by God. And that word of forgiveness and promise is one that God has been acting to establish. Verse 9, so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In contrast, like the Pharisees, all those who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But that means of being right with God, of law-keeping, it doesn't have a future. You're actually under a curse, judged by God as a sinner who hasn't received the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because, why? Habakkuk, there it is again, because the righteous will live by faith. If you want to see life with God, You need to trust him. It's about this relationship with him. You need to trust. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. That's that Leviticus passage. The law, you'd have to keep it all and we fail. Right relationship with God by trusting him. And at the heart of the Christianity is dependence on God, relying on him, trusting him no matter what. It's about that relationship with him, not external rule-keeping, but trusting this God. And how does God do it? How does God accept wicked people? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That is the cross of Jesus. It's Jesus that does it. He redeemed us. He paid the price for our sin. That God can do this. He can let sinners walk free because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and so God is able to let us go free. And this surprising statement culminates in a surprising action of God to 
have your judgment fall on his son. But the cross isn't the end. We're still waiting for God to establish his kingdom. We still experience the need for faith. We still experience that need to wait. Beginning of Thessalonians, Paul talks about the Christian experience of those people there and says what they've done, they've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And the third thing, what is it? And to wait for his son from heaven, to trust. And so what about you? You might be here for the first time. You might have been St Barnabas all your life. Do you trust God who justifies the wicked? Do you understand yourself to be a sinner who has been saved by Jesus? Do you see your sin? Do you trust him as the one who has rescued you? That's what a Christian is. Are you a Christian? There's no point trying to pretend. I used to go on crusader camps as a kid and I knew that if I told the leaders I was a Christian, they would leave me alone. And that's what I did. I just lied for about three years. I liked going. It was fun. But I knew I didn't have what the other people had. I knew that was the case. There's no point trying to pretend you're a Christian. Secondly, what's the gospel you hold out as a church, as individuals? What's the message you have? Is the message you have, we can help you lead the best life you could possibly have. We've got great community. We've got great coffee maybe. We've got... I did say maybe, Joe, didn't I? We don't even try to compete at our church. We just let everyone go down to the cafe down the road. That's what we do. People turn up with their coffees. What's the gospel? What's the message? What's the message people hear? You know, when they hear you, do they think, oh, look, to become like you, I've got to become better. That's often what people hear. You know, you... They they see you as a good person and in order to become like you, they need to go through some kind of moral improvement program. I'll start going to church when I get my life in order or I could never be like you because, well, you lead a life that's different to mine or or I've gone through this experience or this has happened to me or I'm divorced or I'm whatever it might be. And you think that's not the message you're trying to communicate to people, that you've got to be like me in some kind of moral improvement program? So the message we hold out is that you can be right with God because of what he has done for you, that you have a saviour and we want you to know him. You don't have to stop being whatever it is. You need to start trusting him. And once you start trusting him, then all those things can change, whatever it might be. You don't want your message to be some kind of program of moral improvement or social acceptability but of people knowing their heavenly Father who loves them and has acted to save them. And that's why actually we share the Bible with people because as we open the Bible, we open the scriptures, that's the message that flows out. And so even in evangelism, the sharing of the message of Christ, we teach the Bible. We want people to know God through his word. 
Well, there's another question for us. Will Habakkuk trust God? That's what God has told him. Yeah, God has told him, you need to wait. You need to hang on. I'm going to act, but you're going to have to write down my message because it's going to be for others to hear about. You're probably not going to see this happen, Habakkuk. And so will Habakkuk trust? And for that, we're going to find out tomorrow morning.